0: Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Tonight we're joined by our old friend and quarter to three blogger, Tom Chick. Tom, thanks for coming back to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm a little nervous about the people we have on today because I feel outclassed. So why, why don't you uh, yeah, explain who they are, and uh, I'll tell you why I'm nervous in a second.
0: Okay. Uh, so we also welcome back our friend, Stardock designer, John Schaefer. Uh, John, welcome to the show, and, um, I'm, again, really sorry about throwing you to the ground, uh, last weekend, and (laughs) punching you. Hi, Rob.
2: Um, yeah, it's fine. You know, you you lost miserably at WizWar, so it's only fair.
0: Okay, well, I'm glad we could exercise that demon with a spirited game of Joust. Uh... (laughs) And finally, we welcome first-time guest David Heron, a designer at SMG Studios, and uh, one with quite a bit of experience in both card games and video game development. Uh, David, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, thanks for having me. I've been uh, looking forward to finally uh, joining the conversation. Alright, so, Tom, why do you feel outclassed?
1: Okay, so these two guys have like serious like game design know-how. You have the real mellifluous, like, authoritative voice... I kind of feel like a guy coming to uh, a shooting range with a slingshot, and you guys get assault rifles, and it's it's just not fair.
0: You are, you are far too modest after that uh, Dragon's Dogma review. Uh, we, we all know you're packing some pretty serious heat.
1: <laughs> That's an RPG. What are you doing reading about that, Rob Zachney? Well, it,
0: it was getting linked around, it, i got to say. It was, it, was, it was an inspired conceit, <laughs> basically reviewing a game by listing all the ways that uh, EA would fuck it up. That was uh that was pretty great. Um anyway, uh so tonight we're going to confirm something that many of you have long suspected. Uh on three moves ahead, we hate fun. Uh we hate it. Uh and and I didn't realize how how widely shared this feeling was really until this last weekend, uh, at RabbitCon. Uh uh that annual party thrown by our by a friend and uh currently absentee panelist, uh, Julian Murdoch. Uh where we were sitting around dinner and we were talking about a certain newly released popular game. Uh, and both Dave and John, you kind of, um, you kind of started, you, you kind of threw down the gauntlet and uh, said that it's, you, you threw down the gauntlet and you basically said, you know, fun does not equal a good game and people should know the difference. Uh, so I guess I, I I kind of wanted to start with uh, with with you, John, since you got that ball rolling. Uh, why don't you give us a little context for that, and you know, kind of what you mean by it?
2: Okay, sure. Um, yeah, that's uh, always a fun statement uh, to to claim. You know, you always get somebody upset when you say that. But um, yeah, in in this particular context, uh, we were we were actually talking about uh, Diablo three, I believe, and. Uh, we were, we were discussing that, you know, a lot of what makes games of that sort enjoyable is not gameplay mechanics that you would see in other games. Um, you also don't have uh, a lot of the same decisions, you also don't have a lot of the same flow that you would find in other games. And that's not to say it's not, you know, you can't have fun with it. But in terms of uh, just game design, it's a, it's a really interesting case study um, in terms of what keeps people playing, what keeps people going, why they actually enjoy playing it. And if you look at a lot of things that you would, um, you would see working in other games, it's kind of hard to draw parallels. So it was, uh, it was definitely a conversation that uh, kind of meandered a little bit, but uh, that's, I think, how we got it, got it rolling.
1: So I wasn't there, but as the guy who wasn't there, can you, can you break down for me a bit how this, like explain to me what, what you mean when you say that, John? Cause I still, I, I, love what you're saying about Diablo and I can certainly understand that. But what does it mean to say, uh, that, to, to put that distinction between a good game and a fun game? And, and we don't necessarily have to, like, tie the conversation to a particular game, but are you saying that, that there's a such thing as a game that's fun, but not good? I presume that like that's that's something that you're kind of asserting there that, that a game being fun does not equate it being good or well made. Maybe
2: um, I think that that can be true. Um, what's particularly difficult about this subject, and in, in particular, is that fun means something different for everybody. Um, exactly. Yeah, and that's you know that's I think something that we're going to get back to uh, again and again on this while discussing this topic. But uh, you know, as as a designer, obviously my My particular specialty is uh, with strategy games. And one of the things that really makes strategy games interesting, and this is something that uh, Sid Meier always likes to talk about, um, which is the presence of difficult choices that players have to make. You know, I want to decide between doing this and I want to decide, you know, I have to, you know, basically make a mutually exclusive choice. I don't get to, if I pick X, I don't get Y. Um, There are, are a lot of games where that actually isn't the case, and you know, again, coming from the perspective of a strategy game designer, it's it's interesting because in a lot of ways, you know, personally, I don't understand what makes some of these other games fun, and that's something I'd be curious in hearing some of your guys' thoughts on. In you know, uh, what what sorts of elements of games work for you?
1: I love that you mentioned Diablo three because that's ins- that's cons- that is. Sort of foundation for why it's different from Diablo 2 is they take away that concept of mutually exclusive choices. Like that's removed from the character progression in Diablo 3. So I can completely understand if that's your perspective on what a good game design takes. Hey, Diablo 3, by removing that, that Sid Meier tenet, uh, like how can that possibly be a well-made game? Uh, mm-hmm. so I can completely understand. Yeah. Sure. Yeah.
2: That's, that's definitely where I come from mostly when, when I'm trying to design a game and when I'm s- Evaluating systems and trying to identify, you know, at a, on a pen and paper level, uh, before actually doing any playtesting, you know, is this is is this a feature or system that's actually going to be interesting, going to be fun to play? Um, is what what decision is the player actually making when he or she is is faced with the choice here? And in in a lot of games, um, especially outside the strategy genre, there you you don't really see that. So it's I think a case where you could say you know a, game, a certain game is you know quote unquote fun, which is you know kind of the dirty word on the episode, uh, but you know there there are there are some there's something else at work there which may be completely different from what you would see in strategy games. Dave,
0: if I recall, you were actually the one to uh, drag Skyrim's name through the mud yes. uh, during this during this conversation.
3: Um I think you know, this uh we didn't stay on strategy games. I brought up my history and my mistakes in in um collectible card games, but um you know, I went I went immediately at another sort of holy game at, at RabbitCon. Which was a you know maybe a, a continuing theme of the weekend, but um, I took issue with referring to Skyrim as a good game, um, and so where I took issue was um, the notion that having to ignore um, everything that the game puts in front of you in terms of um, directing through the narrative, ignoring the map, ignoring the questing system, ignoring what all the um, NPCs Are directing you towards is where people claim the fun is. It's when they go off the beaten path, when they go in the exact opposite direction, is when they can, um, they hit the fun, which is the exploration. And sort of what I was asserting is is that a good game would understand that this is what players want to do. They want to explore. They want to um, not be directed. They want uh, to find adventure on their own and then facilitate that. And, And then to sort of Uh, heighten the the sort of the argument I invoked um, Far Cry 2, which certainly wasn't a very popular game, but is a game that I infinitely uh, enjoyed more in terms of exploration because it didn't have these things in the way. And in fact, um, a lot of the systems that they had right there um, allowed the user to, or the the player to to have fun and play and explore. And uh, that sort of spawned a, a secondary conversation.
1: Rob, where did you
0: come in on this whole thing? I, I'm wary. I, I'm wary of fun being used as. I'm wary of fun being used interchangeably uh, w- with good. As if it's if it's this automatic virtue in a game. As if like all a game needs to do is occupy your time and keep you diverted. Uh, and if it does that, it's a it's a good game. And I, I just I'm I'm a little wary of that because I think that maybe lets a lot of games off the hook too easily. I think that's I, I a definition that opens the door for a lot of sort of uh, exploitation wear. You know, that, that, that thing that uh, Jonathan Blow is often bringing up, where you've got people designing games uh, to mistreat their players. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's, that's where I become suspicious of fun. Now, I've got to admit, since I came up with this topic, I've had uh, Bruce's voice in the back of my head mm-hmm. uh, going, well, why do you care? You know, I mean, to an extent, we're all, we're all kind of, you know, just whiling away the hours with different games. We all have our own different hobbies. Uh, you know, war games aren't, you know, superior to someone who likes shooters. Uh, they're just two different tastes. Uh, why does it matter how, how, you know, how people are spending their time? Uh, if it, it, You know, if they're getting what they want out of it, uh, what's the point of a conversation like this? Um which is kind of a classic Bruce question to ask, but I think it is, but I think it's, but I think it is relevant here because I don't want it to sound because I am wary of saying, well, my tastes are good and virtuous and enlightened, and other people's tastes are not.
3: So, so I, I think I can, I can sort of speak to that. And for me, it's, it's not about um, one being right or one being wrong. At least from my perspective, mm, as a designer, where it comes into is. Um, potential gaps in between uh, what the player wants and what the rules hold. And so I'll throw an example out there from my collectible card game days. Um, the big sort of dog in the, in the park was obviously Magic the Gathering. Magic the Gathering has the system uh, whereby a random draw determines how many resources you have. Um, for the remaining of the game, and games are won and lost on this random draw, and you know you can you can hedge your bets by including more resources in your pool of cards, but on um, you can just get unlucky and lose the game. And on the game that I was working on, I decided, you know, it had it existed for a while, and I said, I'm going to create some cards to mitigate this problem, and I was successful, and it became a much more um, less. It became a much more predictable game. And inevitably, what ended up happening was is it almost killed the game. It almost killed the casual game because it meant that a good player could always dominate a bad player. And on a local level, it it became an untenable situation. And we had a lot of complaints. And I learned a valuable lesson of that game in particular wasn't meant to be a super competitive
2: game. It was meant to be something that people played at the game store. To, to go back to what Rob was saying a little bit ago, you know, what is, you know, why I even ask this question? Why I bother with it at all? Um, I think it kind of speaks to a little bit about uh, some of the criticism that you find in games journalism these days, or, or um, some criticism of the criticism maybe, where there's a lot of people that are just focusing on what the review scores are for a game and not necessarily reading the content or finding out what the opinion of the reviewer or the journalist in question was. And obviously that that kind of shortchanges the writer, but it also shortchanges the game. It shortchanges, you know, everything involved with the process. And maybe if we're able to kind of put the word fun aside and look at games more critically and point to specifics. In terms of what's working, you know, is the game immersive? Does the game have interesting goals? Does it provide new experiences? Does it allow the player to achieve mastery? Um, You know, are there challenges to overcome? Uh, You know, answering questions like that, I think, may be more valuable in terms of the development side where uh, developers see what sorts of um, feedback that players have. And instead of just saying, okay, this game is fun, let's make, you know, let's put a two after the title and make another one, you know, you can actually get more feedback that way and, and produce something that, that is more, you know, not, not fun, but um, maybe uh, better designed or more polished, and that, that might be something that helps improve games as a whole.
1: So so that, John, I'm, I'm so glad to hear you mention that, because that's exactly where I want to sort of talk about this. Uh, this this issue like that's the part of the conversation that really perks my ears up. Uh, y- if you guys had been in a room with me and started arguing about whether something a game should be fun or good, I would have just I would I mean that that's not an argument. There's no <laughs> dispute there. You might as well talk about whether a game should be interesting versus engaging or immersive versus visceral or or should a game be jaw dropping or awesome. Uh, <laughs> part of the problem is fun and good mean nothing. Those are not articulate ways to express or evaluate or convey anything about a game. And that's the problem is, and that's why I hate the word fun, is it's a crutch for inarticulate, lazy, inexperienced writers without much context. And I constantly see it used. Anytime a writer, especially a reviewer, uses the word fun, he has failed. So uh, what... Uh, that's what. That's why you know when if you guys are arguing about that, I still don't understand what the dispute was because there's a great conversation to be had about how to approach design, and there's a great conversation, like Dave, you mentioned with uh, with the card game. To what audience are you building your game? To some audiences, this is good and fun and immersive and engaging and visceral and interesting. To other audiences, it isn't. So So. Anytime time fun comes in the equation I think no 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 stop stop you're not expressing what we need to talk about in any meaningful way. Uh, and to just give a brief example um, let's say for instance you have a game where you're flying an airplane and the airplane shoots a missile at something and it blows up. That's a great video game experience and who wouldn't hear about that and think yeah I want to do that. But when you break it down if you're going to write about that game or if you're going to tell me about that game It could be a game where it's like an arcade shooter, like Crimson Skies, and it's real easy to just hop in and shoot missiles and blow things up. Great. It could be a multiplayer thing like Battlefield 3 where you've got to camp and you've got to get the jet and you've got to sort of grind the jet and, and get flares so you can evade the missiles and eventually you're blowing stuff up with, with missiles and that's great. Alternatively, it could be a hardcore flight sim where you've got to learn the hotkey or the switch to lift the lens cap off of the optic targeting system before you launch the missile. All three of those are about the same kind of experience where you're flying a jet, shooting a missile. So if you were telling me about this game where you fly a jet and shoot a missile and you tell me it's fun or not, that doesn't tell me anything. No, you right, then, right. But then if you explain what that experience is like, if you explain one of those three things that I talked about, you have then given me plenty of information, and I don't really care whether or not you find it fun. That right. if, you're, if, if you then get to that point where you then tell me it's fun, you might as well also tell me what you had for lunch, how many times you've seen the Avengers, and what you think of who's going to win American Idol. You know, at, once you start talking about fun, you are no longer talking about the game, and you are talking about yourself. And I think that's a huge problem in video games journalism, is that we have a generation of people who are used to tweeting what they had for lunch, how many times they saw the Avengers, and what they think of American Idol. And so they therefore think that a viable way to talk about a game is whether or not they thought it was fun.
3: Right, and I think ultimately that's where this conversation was about. This was a this was a, a conversation with maybe about three designers in the room and um, about ten um, sort of players mm-hmm. and and the terms that were being thrown around were fun and good and there was I think in some part an effort on myself and John and a few others to raise the level of discourse by illustrating that we can arbitrarily make these, these say these things it is fun and not good and listen to the arguments that we are making and, and, and then encouraging you to stop saying it's fun think about what we've said and then, and then assign a value. So we were assigning values to those words. We were in the context of the conversation. We were defining them and challenging people on the on that level.
1: I don't think you can do that, though. How can you define what's fun? It, I heard Miyamoto once talking about the art of game design, and he, in his own. Uh, this might sound kind of racist, but in his own way, it had this awesome sort of Zen-Cohen quality. Like, listening to Miyamoto talk is, is a beautiful sort of zen experience. And at one point during the conversation, he said, the art of game design is trying to catch fun in a net. Right. And I thought that was so beautiful, and you cannot define fun. Uh, like, like, don't even try, leave it as this little poetic statement like Miyamoto made, and that's really all you can do with it. Now, if you guys, in, the, in a room like that, if you, you know, when friends are talking with each other, you, you know, like, I care if Rob thinks a game is fun, because I know Rob and we're friends, and I want to know about him. Uh, and if you guys are all in that room talking about th- whether or not things are fun, that's fine, because you're talking about yourselves. Um but but as far as like trying to define it or use it I I don't as a, think
3: we're in disagreement, Tom.
1: I don't, yeah, okay. I,
3: I think I think that was the precise argument that we were having.
2: I think that the term fun actually isn't without any value. So I think it can be useful, but only in the sense of... It's, it's almost if, as though you were reviewing a game, giving it a thumbs up or a thumbs down... Um, it's it's part of the story. It's either the beginning or the end, but it's not the complete picture. It's you know, for example, uh, a game that we we talked a fair bit about in this discussion was was Skyrim, which we talked a little bit about before. And a lot of us were making the point that you know, well, this system didn't work so well. The combat wasn't great. You know, this this part of the game wasn't polished. The quests were kind of repetitive. But you know what? It was fun. So it was. You could almost view it in the, in the light of, okay, you know, we were giving it a review and you know, minus points on on several features, but overall, you know, in the in the final sum total, yes, thumbs up. But you know, even in spite of these flaws, somehow the whole was greater than the than the sum of its parts. But you know what? You and know I, what, John? If you, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to, you know, wrap up and say that that's, you know, that I think there is some value to that in saying that. You know, there there was something here in spite of these other flaws. You know, maybe that's just a stepping stone to further discussion on it. But I think there well, is, exactly, there is yeah. some value in
1: that. Well, see, that's the thing. If you were to tell me, you know, Skyrim, the combat is clunky, the, the quests aren't don't guide you very well, the story isn't well written. If you were to tell me all those things and then say, but the game is fun... It's absolutely a stepping stone because you can't stop there because you haven't told me anything. You know, I would want to know what you mean by that. Okay, well, what things did work for you about Skyrim? Like, that's where the conversation goes. You don't just stop after saying it's fun. So if that's the case, why not just skip mentioning it's fun and going on to the other things that you mentioned that it's a stepping stone to? Sure. I, and well, I'm, being, f- I'm being hard on it just because I really mm-hmm. do. As a writer, I get so frustrated at seeing what I feel are lazy reviews that rely on that word. Um, so I'm just kind of picking on you, because that, you're absolutely right. Skyrim has problems, but boy, it is fun, and I agree with you. But that's what, let's talk further. Don't stop the conversation there. That's just a waypoint to continue the conversation to its next stage.
2: Sure. I think, I think that you have, to, you have to cover all the bases, basically. You, I think the, one of the issues that might come in is when you're reviewing a game or the things that stand out most are going to be your negative experiences or the things that you thought were broken. So if you let's say you have you know your little review checklist again, and you you know you have all these these points against it, and then one of the points in favor was that you know the game was really immersive, and maybe that's that's worth a whole lot more than all these little smaller things that kind of stood out. Um, so you know how do you how do you provide weight to something yeah. without spending you know half half the time talking about just this thing that kind of worked, and you you know it's there may not be a whole lot to to describe there we well,
1: you know i like rob i'd be curious what you think about this but i i know a lot of us who write about games find that it's easier to bring up the negatives it's, it's a little bit harder to talk about a game that you really like and especially if you really do like it uh, like it's really easy to say i don't like this i don't like that and it's easy to sort of be negative and make fun of something but to really convey enthusiasm is more difficult and so that's why i think a lot of people rely on the word fun like would you agree rob that it's harder to articulate why something works for you, than why something doesn't work for you? Uh,
0: I, I think that's true, and and here's why I think that is. I think the reason you end up falling back on, um, you know, just outright saying, well, well, this is fun, or this part of the game is fun. And I've run into this with you know different different views I've written, uh, and I've had editors tell me, like, well, you you spend you spend like an entire passage here describing a lot of what you do in the game and kind of how it works, not just describing mechanics, you know, but like the experience of playing it and everything, and you know, but you don't actually deliver a verdict on what that experience adds up to. You don't actually say whether or not you enjoyed this. And, and my, my response there tends to be twofold. Like, like, one, you know, you can kind of tell how I'm reacting to it just from the way I've written it. But the other thing is this. It's really difficult to say whether or not this is fun, because I have no idea how you're going to react to the same stuff I'm doing in the game if you were doing it yourself. Like, I have no idea, if you're going to find Crusader Kings 2 fun. But if I describe Crusader Kings 2 and some of like, the cool experiences I've had in that game, if I describe that, and you're sitting there and you're saying, Shit, this sounds amazing, then I think I've done my job, then you know. Then your decision is made. And that's and then we're going to agree because somehow we should like we share the idea of fun that Crusader Kings 2 is is answering. And if you're sitting there saying, Oh my god, no, no, just Keep keep that away from me. Then you know. Then I think again, we we both learned something. But but I I think it's it's that that idea that 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 fun is so hard to define. That you kind of almost have to you 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 kind of almost have to hear like, well, what do you do in this game? And then get an idea of how you feel about that.
3: So, Rob, can I ask you a specific question about Naval War Arctic Circle?
0: Go for it. This is great. Right. So.
3: (laughs) So we sort of, you know, I brought up the point of uh, taking into consideration uh, sort of what the player desires, and that brings up this notion of, like, player intent in the same way of, like, you have, like, authorial intent in my sort of, you know, if we want to avoid authorial intent, that's not important. It doesn't really matter what they tried to do. And in the same way, should we be ignoring what player intent was? And the reason why I brought this up is it was painful listening to you sort of talk about uh, your torpedoes being shot down by anti-aircraft missiles before they blew up the the ship, and where I would sort of, I know I, I heard would, that too. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Air torpedoes. Was... Sorry, what did I say? You said torpedoes being shot down by anti-aircraft. Oh, geez. picturing <laughs> uh, like flying fish, but never mind. But flying
3: fish. Your were were they missiles? Yeah, anti ship missiles. Yeah, anti ship missiles being shot down by the by the the countermeasures. Um. In my my sort of where I would take issues is that's a that's a simulation game as described by the designer, um, where where it just seemed like it ruined the fun. I'm sorry, Tom, but <laughs> it, it it sort of what and, and so I'll, I'll 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 sort of elaborate on that. And so this is my problem with simulation games is that I I like games where I can show mastery, where I can show dominance, and where my decisions are the primary. Um, force that determines the outcome and I find that's not the case in real life and many times in simulation games it's forces outside of my control that ultimately determine my success or failure and that is not fun.
1: How is that different though from shuffling a deck of cards and having no control over which card is going to be in your hand? because
3: so so the difference they think the difference lies in probabilities it's what is what is the most determining factor and how often it happens and so in the the, the case of of uh arctic uh, the arctic the circle arctic circle it seemed like the dominant strategy uh or the the, the determining factor was these anti-missile uh, countermeasures and that you know Nine times out of ten, the missiles were being shot down. When you mm-hmm. shuffle a dice, you're, or when you shuffle a deck of cards, and you <laughs> shuffling get...
1: shuffling a dice is kind of like shooting down a torpedo with uh, anti-aircraft <laughs> uh, fish. Aircraft <laughs> fish. Um,
3: when you shuffle a, when you when you get a resource uh, limited in magic, that's mm-hmm. the exception. That's the thing that happens that allows the bad player to win one time out of twenty. Huh. Uh, and so, and, and so this is where I would say, uh, and and so would your guest on the show that, well, that was what the simulation was. And so here's an instance where I would say, bad game, no fun.
0: <laughs> right. See but, that? Go ahead, Rob. I'm sorry. Right. But, but see, but there, but, and see, this is, this is why, this is why this is su- such a slippery concept. And it's actually something I've been mm-hmm. really sort of struggling with in, in reviews lately, because uh, you do see so much diversity in uh, strategy games, in particular, like you see a lot of design diversity there, uh, that isn't necessarily always true quite to the same extent in like shooters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know that might be a bastardized way of summarizing shooters, but um, but but anyway, just but just to go back to like the the naval war example, because uh, I ran into this to in in comments at, at Rock Paper Shotgun where people were like, you know, well you know this this sounds awesome that's that's naval war man this is a simulation you and you're you're expecting it to be a game you're you're clearly not a grognard mm-hmm. um but and, and that's and that's the problem is like i, I played that too and, and in a lot of cases my feeling was also this is not fun you know waiting for like planes to fly back rearm do all this crap that is that is that is not that is, that is not enjoyable it's, it's just it's just me S- sitting there waiting for stuff to happen so that we can reach some sort of inevitable conclusion in the scenario, uh, but there are people who, for them, they want that experience of being an admiral, and if that means sitting on your ass waiting for your planes to refuel and rearm and sending out another fruitless sortie, um, then that's great because they're really doing it. And, and so, and that that's where I think, you know, you re- like you run into these really. The, these awkward situations where you have completely different ideas of what is an enjoyable activity, and uh, you know trying to make absolute statements about fun when when you've got such different expectations is really tough
1: and I no, really it's don't impossible. Think that has to, <laughs> and I don't think it has to be an awkward situation though, like just listening to you guys talk, I now know more about Rob and Dave, you know what they like and what they look for in a game, and when they talk about their subjective experience with a game i you know I I can put that in context, and that makes perfect sense to me. So Dave talking about the difference between the, the torpedo algorithms in Arctic Circle versus the way dice and cards work, that makes perfect sense to me. I understand that. Uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't have to be awkward, the fact that some people will like that and, and some people won't. And, and what both models have in common, by the way, whether you're talking about trying to get a torpedo through in, in Arctic Circle or whether you're talking about trying to draw red mana, you know what they have in common, uh, and I'm going to say something that, that uses a synonym for fun, but it uses it necessarily. So this is kind of a cheat. Uh, but there's a fellow named Andrew Mayer who's a writer, uh, and he's worked on some, in some game design. And he said one of the smartest things about game design that good lord I wished I'd thought of. But he described it as as the art of enjoyable frustration.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And what's beautiful about that, kind of like that Miyamoto uh, comment, is there's this paradox here you know, enjoying something and being frustrated by it are, are, are at odds. And to some degree, some people, you, you have to provide both of those things in game design. You have to give the player something fun, and you have to somehow frustrate him, whether it's by using the randomness of cards not coming up right or shooting down nine of his torpedoes, uh, both things have to be required. And where you strike that balance, you know, that's what you have to decide That's how you decide, you you know, you tailor that to an audience. Some audiences want different calculus at work there, whether they're playing Dark Souls or Diablo, for instance. Both of those feature enjoyable frustration uh, with with a different kind of balance.
3: Um, And I'd like to point out that Tom was the first person to use the word mana, making him the biggest nerd on the podcast.
1: Thank you, thank you. Is there a trophy for that? (laughs) 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 Trophy
0: is dying alone. (laughs) Oh, oh.
2: Well I think that you know one one thing that's you know we've kind of been dancing around a little bit um is that something like fun is subjective everybody has their own completely unique view as to what is fun and what isn't and that's part of what makes it important to you know as Tom was saying earlier fully describe what's going on with the game what systems there are how they work so that players can actually have an idea of okay does this is this something that might actually appeal to me or is oh well it's way too random it's not something i'm gonna enjoy um and the fact that it is subjective i i don't think we should shy away from you know this is something that i think we uh we see in in games journalism as well where uh, people try to be as objective as possible but ultimately it, it really isn't possible. And I think it's probably best for people just to embrace the fact that, hey, everything is your own personal opinion. You should try to provide as much information as you can, but don't be afraid of the fact that, yes, this is an opinion, you know, if you disagree with it, that's fine, but that's the way it is. So John, I wanna ask you as a designer, um, when you're working, do you have
3: like a player profile in mind that you sort of make design decisions based on like, is this person going to be fun or going to think that this mechanic
1: is fun? And also I want to piggyback onto that question, Dave, and to you as well. Do you guys as designers use and hear the word fun when you were, when you were designing?
3: (laughs) Oh, Uh, constantly.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not from the right people, but (laughs) well, the, the the right people don't use the word. So, um, for me i i and this is kind of the same thing that sid does which is to design a game that would appeal to you because mm-hmm. ultimately your only measuring stick is okay is, when i enjoy it when or when i'm playing this do i enjoy it does am i you know having fun making these difficult decisions are there are there parts of the game that are really um forcing me to choose between you know two difficult trade-offs um and is it does it flow well that sort of thing and you can also get the feedback from people around you but ultimately you know you can you can try to design for some mythical player figure but if you have no experience with that if you're not in that group you know you're pretty much stabbing in the dark and the best that you can do is give it Give it a guess, and then uh, allow metrics and playtesting to give you the answer. But that's, you know, that's kind of on a, a little different side of the uh, game design space from what I'm used to doing. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of more on the side of well, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this thing, and you know, maybe it's art, or, or you know, maybe it's right. not. But I'm not gonna measure it by you know, uh, focus testing.
3: That's interesting because I'm sort of I think on the on the opposite angle where I think right now I'm working in the, the mobile space and before I was in the card game space. So we were releasing six releases a year. So I had to take a more shoot from the hip type uh, behavior where myself and you know the designers working for me, I would get them to literally tell me stories and sort of work backwards from where Tom was and say, tell me, you know, who is this person? What what, what about these decisions are going to lead me to believe that this person is going to have fun and if that story was believable in my head and i could actually per- picture that person being a demographic that made sense with you know our sort of our, our sales goals and whatever uh, that's what informed the decisions that i make it's interesting yeah, i can
2: i can definitely see how that would be important um, there are certainly games that are being made that are being enjoyed by you know millions and millions of people that are built that way, and they kind of have to be built that way. Um, some some of the most popular games these days are are ones that aren't, you know, aren't made in in the uh, classic, you know, late eighties <laughs> early nineties model of hey, let's throw something together and see what happens, and polish it, and throw it out there and hope it does well. It's it's more of a more of a process now, more almost more <laughs> mechanical in a way, um, and you have to kind of remove yourself a little bit more from it. Um, I'm not sure that's something that I could ever really do, but um, it's it's definitely something I respect, and I can see that how difficult it, it must be.
1: Uh, I would be curious if, uh, just while we're on sort of the subjective experience of, of games, uh, can you guys think of games that were not fun, but that you still liked?
0: That's a lot of Paradox games for me. <laughs> ah, well there you
1: go, explain, I'd like to hear more about that, so mm-hmm. like, give us examples.
0: I mean, I like them and I still go back to play them. So I, I, I've often found one of the one of the most reliable indicators as to whether or not I am having fun is what time it is when I stop playing and whether it actually feels like the amount of time that actually passed is how much time I was in the game.
1: <laughs> the return for feel, investment kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it feels yeah, and it
0: feels like and it feels like real time. Like uh yeah that game was that game was an hour, or God help us like oh God, I was only playing that for an hour then i I'm not necessarily I'm not necessarily that absorbed i'm not I'm not experiencing that Um, I'm, I'm not getting I'm not getting that I, i'm not I'm not getting absorbed into the game the way I often do when I'm having like lots and lots of fun you know the Pegel effect right like oh God where'd the sun go that kind of thing mm-hmm. um, with a lot of paradox games um, in a lot of ways, there's just there, there's there's too much to think about. Um, it's playing them is almost at times a bit too much like work for me to feel in like to, to get the same sort of feeling I get from playing like an RPG or something. Um, but at the same time, what ends up happening is I get really invested in my game in part because of. What I'm what I'm putting into it, you know, like I'm I'm working really hard at creating a successful empire. I'm working really hard at securing that alliance with, um, you know, Bordeaux or something like that. And so those are games that I I don't I don't I don't think they're 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 fun they're fun the way I usually use that term. And yet and yet I enjoy them because they are providing they, they're they providing a different they're providing a different sort of reward that i'm used to from a lot of the games i play mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. john dave can you guys think of games that aren't fun that you like
2: hmm. it's it's a tricky question especially coming from the perspective of a designer because um i tend to play quite a few games um if only for the reason to just check them out and see what's going on inside um and you know, honestly, there's a lot of games where I would say that, uh, you know, I didn't really grab me a whole lot, um, but there were elements of it that I looked at and I, I said to myself, you know, this was this was done really well. I can I can you know this this is a great mechanic. I could see how they could really run with this, or you know, maybe I'll borrow it in one of my other games. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, one one game that might be a um, uh, an example of that is Warlock, um, and it's. Um, it's a game that I've played for mm, I don't know maybe about six hours, and there were definitely parts of it that I enjoyed, and there were certain mechanics and aspects that I said, you know, this is this is something that's really cool. Um, you know, one one specific example there is uh, when uh, you have a resource near one of your cities, and you have a, uh, a choice between two different buildings that you can build on, like silver. You can either build uh, like a silver mine and get more money from it, or you can uh, um, build Something else, I forget what it is, but uh, it's an it armory, I think. It gives you yeah, like silver it, armor. Or yeah. Exactly, yeah. You can get silver equipment, which kind of helps your units. So you have to decide at that point, you know, ooh, what am I going to do with the city? Is it going to be kind of a, you know, a cash cow city, or is it going to be more of a military city? And that was something I thought that was uh, pretty cool and and really well done in the game. Um, in terms of the whole experience. You know, it kind of left me looking for a little bit more, and I think this is one of the reasons why uh, some of the thoughts on it are a little bit mixed. Um, Some people went into it expecting it to be a lot deeper and have a lot more to it because it looks like a traditional Forex game that should have all this really, really deep stuff in it, um, but it just doesn't. So I think that might be one example of how... um, you know, there were parts in that game where I said, "Ooh, you know, this is really cool." But at the end of the day, once I was done, I was kind of like, "Yeah, okay, you know, I think I'm, I think I'm finished with it." Uh, I think my, my example is Majesty
3: Two, um, where yeah. I, where I, I wanted to like it. Uh, I think I was working on something similar at the time, um, a lot of the same sort of design philosophies, and. I thought I had a really good game in you know, as I was I was working through and then I sat down and played Majesty Two and it sort of it hit a lot of the same sort of themes and tropes um, that I was working with at the time and I just couldn't enjoy myself.
1: Do you and now do that, you know why? Because I, I, I think that was a challenging design. Like what what made it hard for you to enjoy that? Like what made that not fun?
3: Um, you know, it, it, it's been a while. Um, I think, can
1: I, can I suggest maybe what I, I what think, I think I, mean? think,
3: I think I had a very hard time associating, um, what I was doing with any sort of real agency. Um, yep. and that, and that to me, I think, I think is sort of the root of the problem. Is and it, that, is it, is it divorced? I was so divorced from what was going on. The successes and failures just fell flat.
1: Majesty is, that's one of the things I love about that design, and I can completely understand it not being fun and people not digging it. Mm -hmm. It's an exercise in letting go of control. You you know, it it looked like Mm -hmm. a genre where you have ultimate control. It looks like an RTS where you can click on a unit and tell it to go here, but it really taught you, specifically the first Majesty and the second one saw this through. It really taught you, you know what, you have to let go of that control. You have to accept that some things you cannot have agency over and now watch it unfold. Uh, right. And that and was very bold and I can completely understand that, that tilting too far to the frustration side of the equation.
3: And, 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 and I spent a lot of time with it and there was something that sort of hit there, you know, there's some sort of like lizard brain part of me where it really responded. And I think that's why as a designer, I was drawn to it, <laughs> um, but it was very hard for me to tell a story of why... The management of resources and the changing of influence and things like that um, in a very, very abstract way was going to lead to um, a fun, or in my case, a, a uh, for someone, someone that someone found enjoyable, but also something that would differentiate itself in a meaningful way. It was
1: difficult. Dave, I love the fact, I mean, I can completely, from the guy who doesn't want nine out of 10 torpedoes shot down... I completely really understand how you want no part of that whole majesty, I don't get to control my dudes (laughs) equation. So there are two examples that I can think of where I I was playing a game and I was like, this is not fun, but I really dig the game. Uh, And one example is a game that's really skill-based that expects you to really have to learn how to play it and to really have to practice and master the that, controls.
0: I'm so I'm so glad to hear you saying this because I actually wanted to revisit my answer too. So
1: well here's here's three <laughs> specific kinds of games that, that that make me think of that. One is StarCraft Two, which I <clears> you know, as much as I kind of took issue well not took issue, but that was what that was how they approached the design. It's a super challenging esports, meticulous, micromanagement heavy RTS. And if you practice it a lot you'll get better at it. Uh, right. I I love those Tony Hawk games uh, mm-hmm. and and EA Skate series and it's the same kind of thing. You can do a little kickflip and jump and that's easy enough, but you really have to practice to master these tricks. And you have to you have to try to land a trick twenty times before it succeeds. And I'm like, this is not fun. But
3: yeah, by golly, I, I, went, said,
1: I, I went through twenty times. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I almost said the 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 NHL series. You know, the idea that when you are playing with someone that's sitting next to you and you know that you can't possibly score. He is so dominant. You know, my, my ex-roommate, he beat me routinely 12 to 1.
1: Well, you know, that that the, the third one is probably exactly like this, Dave, and that's fighting games. Yes. Uh, specifically the really technical ones where you have to practice timing and, and get the blocking and, and stuff. Like, like, some people hate that, and I find myself thinking, oh, this is way too much of the frustration part of the, the equation. I want no part of this. But I find myself still plugging away and practicing it, that sort of thing. Yeah, even though I'm thinking example. this is not fun. Uh, so it's mm-hmm. like you trying to score against mm-hmm. your friend.
3: Fantastic yeah. example, Street Fighter.
1: Yeah. Uh, Rob, what what you you said this uh, made you think of something? No, it
0: because I wasn't entirely happy with my answer in, in part because I I think maybe there's just a broader way of how I think of fun, and I and I think I, I sort of view fun as being. A word that implies something is kind of coming easy. I think it's a word that implies there's not a lot of work behind it, and that you know your definition of fun might be different or whatever. But uh, you know, like a, games like what Paradox is offering, where you've really got to learn how to work those systems and play the angles, and once you figure all that stuff out. And you can start, like, imposing your will on the game a little bit, and it, you know, and, and, and it starts, like, feeding back to you, and now you start to see how it all comes together, and now you're really, like, inhabiting your role as a medieval lord or king. Uh, then, you know, at that point, yeah, the, the game's a lot of fun, but there's also a lot of moments where you're just doing a lot of administrative stuff uh, that just does feel very work-like. The same goes for my relationship with just about any type of sin, uh, sim, including racing games, which I absolutely love. But ah, the fact yes. is, like, if you're playing a hardcore racing game, those amazing moments that you're going to be talking about for a long time, you know, during the races or something, uh, you, know, t- you know, tough fights for the lead, you know, chasing a guy down for six laps and then passing him in the final corner, those are amazing experiences and, uh, you know, an absolute ton of fun, wouldn't trade them for the world. What's behind them is hours and hours and hours and hours, and hours of practice. And frustrating practice. Like, you're going to screw up a lot. And these are games that, you know, because because these games allow these high skill ceilings, um, the, the price you pay for that is there is no way for them to soften the learning curve. They try. They, they provide training aids and everything. But in the end, if you're playing the game as it's intended to be played, the game makes it entirely possible for you to be complete garbage at it. And that's not a lot of fun. And the only way to get through it is by being garbage and, you know, being utterly terrible, and fighting through that until it clicks, and you can play it competently. Yeah. Um, and then it, then it's fun, but that that that's that, that's kind of my take on those games.
1: The the racing game example you mentioned uh, also I think fits into the other category I'm thinking of too. When when you get good at a racing game and you're actually in a race, there's this sense of uh, really weighing the risk-reward calculation. Am I going to try to pass this guy here? Am I going to try to, you know, how quickly am I going to turn this curve? Where am I going to take that spade at that? Where am I going to put that trade-off between speed and, and control? Uh, and there are other games that play a lot with risk-reward and that let you push yourself however far you want along that trade-off and are willing to punish you for it. And I love games like that but when I push too far and get punished, I want to blame the game and I say this game sucks, it's no fun, I'm never going to play again. Uh, and the things that I think of, and racing games would fall in this category, are games like Dark Souls. Uh, there was a great zombie game called Dead Rising, which really put a premium on trying to get to these save points. And do you go backwards, do you go forwards? How far do you push forward? The save system was really controversial on that, but it really let put in your lap this whole risk trade-off. Uh, and another game, a recent one that came out that I think John does not think is very good, lets you do this, and that's Diablo 3 with its <laughs> hardcore mode. Diablo 3 hardcore I have absolutely fallen in love with, and I've lost characters. And when I lose a hardcore character, I'm like, I hate this game. I'm never playing it again. It sucks. And then 20 minutes later, I'm rolling up a new character because, for me personally, one of the fun things is raising stakes and, and that thrill you get from having stakes and and being vulnerable to being punished by a game. And most game designers don't want to do that, and I understand that. But one of the things I really, really love in how much varied game design is going on now is that something like Dark Souls can be popular, can be commercially successful when it's based on letting players fail and get punished by pushing too far on that risk-reward scenario. And that's not fun. But when it works, (laughs) it is fun. So. Oh, yeah,
2: ab- absolutely. I think that, um, yeah, my m- the next character that I play on Diablo is going to be hardcore, uh, for sure. And, you know, I hear stories from people about how they had a, a character at level, you know, 40 or whatever, and it died, yep. and it was just gone, and they were so crushed. And that just sounds awesome to me. Maybe I'm just <laughs> sick and twisted like that. But, you know, for me, you know, my subjective definition of fun is... Uh, I think somewhat similar to what you were saying, there needs to be stakes, there needs to be risks, there needs to be that opportunity for failure. And that's why, you know, some of the games I've been playing recently that I've really enjoyed, um, one example is uh, Unity of Command, which I've talked, you know, endlessly about. You know, you make one wrong decision in that and the AI will tear you apart. And the fact that that's a possibility is, I think, really cool. because it adds meaning to your decisions, I think. For me, uh, when when you can just kind of reload or you know undo whatever happens, which is you know really prevalent in a lot of mainstream games, it just kind of takes something away from it for me. Um, obviously, that's not the case for most people; otherwise, it wouldn't kind of become the norm. But you know, I think that's another example of how you can you can point to something specific and. Say okay, this is, you know, this is something that's not going to appeal to everybody. But hey, I'm going to point this out um, because there is a group out there that really enjoys this kind of punishing. You know, you make a mistake, you you pay for it, style of gameplay.
0: And and I think, you know, hardcore mode in particular um, is really useful to look at because I think w- with hardcore mode, I think it addresses my real problem with. Diablo and a lot of the games that have sort of cloned uh, Diablo which is I I find there is a hollowness at the heart of the uh, heart of those experiences that I find really dreary really depressing if I ever like really comprehend it like I had this experience with torchlight too where I got like you know somewhere into the somewhere into like the 20 some levels uh, so not terribly far into the game but still there there is this moment where I was like you know, I die. and I'm instantly ported back to a checkpoint. Um, you know, still got most of my stuff. You know, go repair it. Go and go go resume dungeoneering. Basically, click on more stuff. Kill it. It explodes. Whether I die, whether I don't. If I die, it's a brief inconvenience. But the, you know, it, it occurs to me that all I'm doing, you know, it's that. Oh God, you're just clicking on stuff. Because while there are decisions you can make, there are tactics you can employ. Does it really matter that much if you know if, if the penalty for failures is is so minimal? But the moment you're basically the moment you're playing with live ammunition, suddenly that stuff which you know maybe seemed a little shallow before, and I think this applies to a lot of different games. And this this is why I kind of you know maybe prefer more punishing games. But a lot of that stuff that seemed a little shallow, seemed a little simple, seemed a little obvious. The moment you realize, like, oh god, my entire Play experience to this point is hinging on whether I might make the right call here. You know, can I kill this thing or do I need to bug out? Mm-hmm. And that kind of rescues the, goes a long way to rescuing the experience, not all the
3: way in Diablo's case for me, <laughs> but a, but a good way. Yeah. So can you can you apply that to a strategy game? Sure. Yeah. Give an play example.
1: Playing XCOM Iron Man. Right? Oh, for <laughs> sure. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah. Of I course. think.
2: Well. Honestly, I would say that strategy gaming is where this is done best. Yeah. Because in nearly every strategy game that's actually "quote unquote" fun, the decisions you make are supremely important. I mean, you can right. you can't always reload, but if if somebody declares war on you, or you had your units in the wrong spot, or you you know you didn't grab that resource when you had the opportunity, you know that's that's a real consequence, and that's something that you find in pretty much every strategy game that you do not find in most other genres.
1: And to, to cast this in that whole thing that Andrew Mayer said about game design being enjoyable frustration, mm-hmm. I mean, we, it, what, what some of us really like, and I think part of this has to do that all four of us have played a lot of different games, mm-hmm. we've got this very wide context for it, we in ways are much more demanding than the typical player, but we like, you know, this. when we get frustrated, it makes the enjoyable parts all that much more enjoyable because there's this sense that we earned it. Uh, there's this sense that if we know a game can, can hit us and we are evading being hit, we are evading being right. beaten, we're evading defeat, we're staying alive in hardcore mode, we are maintaining our squad in X-Man, XCOM Iron Man, uh, like that just for us, that's where we, you know, that's a huge source of fun.
3: Definitely, John. I was. I just want to take this opportunity to ask you a question about this idea of in a strategy game. If you don't grab the resource, if these are these are decisions, or um, you know, fall, you know, things that have, that happen to you that are going to determine the end of the game. Um, one of my sort of concerns whenever I'm working with a game is the delay between the poor choice or the poor circumstance and the clear. Uh, illustration to the player that they have now lost Um, a source of frustration that you know isn't fun is i think when they realize that they've played for another four hours and it didn't matter Um, now if you cut it too close you just run into this reloading problem so how do you
2: handle that well, yeah, you, you point out, and it's it's a huge dilemma, and it's something that I don't think is really a, a solved question. Um, mm-hmm. Depending on what what specific type of strategy game or, or game otherwise that you're looking at, um, I think that in general you do you kind of want to lean in the direction of making that clear sooner rather than later. Um, right. But again it, it kind of depends on what kind of game you're making and what kind of player you're you're hoping to grab and and do grab um and i think that in in a lot of ways that that is a flaw with a lot of games like in the forex genre where right. yeah you do you do make decisions and you don't find out until a lot later that they weren't the right decision um i think what what you really need to make sure is that the game the rest of the mechanics and the content that you have are are fun enough and provide enough replayability and enough opportunities that when a player does reach that point, instead of saying, you know, wow, this game sucks, they, they kind of say, well, oops, you know, I I should have gotten that resource earlier. You know, you, you kind of want to build it so that the player internalizes that and feels like they had the information, that they had the opportunity, that they knew Right. kind of what their ramifications were going to be and you know that's it's not something you can do every time but players are always happier when they are equipped with the information to make decisions and if they're not they'll blame the game if they do right. have that information they'll internalize that and then they'll say I'm going to come back next time and do it better right so for those keeping score at home the delay between a mistake and a loss is a function
3: of good not fun it's good <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh One way around that, too, is when you're going to frustrate the player, immediately follow it up with some sort of recognition. And a great way to do this, and Civ was always... I mean, you never really failed in Civ when you were doing it right, but I loved how at the end of Civ we, you would get this, and I feel like it's missing from games like Warlock. There's another great fantasy 4X called Conquest of Elysium that didn't have this at first. But when your game is over, if you failed... Uh, like give me a high score or give me some kind of debriefing or a title or it's like in NetHack you know which is yeah. uh, that's the template for Diablo ultimately in NetHack when your guy dies he goes on a little high score list and he's he's memorialized basically right uh, mm-hmm. and and that's a great way you know what if you're gonna give the player that little frustration part of the the enjoyable frustration immediately follow it up with some little tidbit of recognition and encourage him to do better next time Uh,
2: yeah i think i think also ideally um you want you know when you can to make a game where setbacks are not permanent and they're not game ending and this is one of the things i think that crusader kings 2 has done an excellent job of Ah, which is you know your 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 kingdom might be down but it's never out you know your armies might be completely wiped from the board but you know you're going to lose a province you're going to lose some score you're going to lose some money but you know there there will be a next time it's not game over and i think that's one of the best traits of of that game um and and kind of a lot of the paradox games in general and it's exactly. something i would like to see in, in a lot of other games as well
1: yeah i think paradox is like it, it's more highlighted in crusader kings 2 because of the dynasty system but i think paradox has always been good about letting you play a nation and and conveying to you that your prestige, which is sort of the gauge of how you're doing, is going to fluctuate. You know, there can be ups and downs, and you're riding this tide of history, uh, and it's not always going to be success. Paradoxes strategy games allow for failures in a way that a lot of 4Xs really don't.
2: Um, something that uh, you brought up, Tom, that I'm a little bit curious to, uh, to get other people's thoughts on. I have actually never played a roguelike game, and it's uh, always been something that's been in the back of my mind, saying, you know, you should really check this out. Um, I'm kind of curious what your guys' thoughts on that on that genre is. It's a um,
3: it's a favorite of mine, a
2: personal
3: <laughs> favorite. I I love um, the sense of exploration. I love uh, the brief moments of attachment you have, right? Like everything, it's all it's all contained. You can sort of invest yourself in. A session or a character and then it's over and you don't have to obsess and you don't have to move over um i love the in sort of the more recent roguelike games um the the trails of persistence that that they that they leave um so it creates a sort of a narrative between one sort of instance to another um yeah i i i love those games uh,
1: a, a great roguelike that you should try john uh diablo 3 on hardcore Mode.
2: it's on my list (laughs) i think you know the reason why i bring up uh the the roguelikes is because you know one one thing that i'm i'm pretty sure of is that player expectations play a larger role in whether or not a game is fun than really anything else because if you, you know, the, the kind of people that will seek out roguelikes and the experience where, hey, you know, you play it through, and if you die, you're gone, that's it. Um, the, the kind of players that seek that out love that sort of experience. If you put put that in front of, you know, a Call of Duty player, it's probably not going to go over so well. Just like if you put Call of Duty in front of your average roguelike player, that's not going to do so well. <laughs> and you know, I think it's it's very interesting and instructive to, to kind of point to that. And for for designers and developers I think it's really interesting because it kind of it kind of shows that what may be even more important than the mechanics themselves are how you frame them and how you set the player up and how you present the game and you know even how you market it and how you talk about it before it even comes out um I think that a lot of times the the subjective is a game fun or not is about more than just the game itself it's about the player it's about the the hype surrounding it it's about you know the word of mouth it's about uh, what games journalism is saying it's about what's on twitter and it's it's almost kind of divorced in a way from the game itself
1: and you know you, we are so I, I say we you know what i'm gonna blame you guys you guys are so mean to shooters on this podcast uh i i mostly agree with i, I totally agree with what you're saying john but i want to take issue with one thing shooters actually do have that rogue-like sensation. Uh, they allow for that in one of, the, one of the oldest, most popular shooters out there is, is Counter-Strike, where you have one life. When you die, when you're playing Counter-Strike, you're playing it a completely different style than you are when you're just doing a death match in, in Call of Duty, where you immediately respawn. Uh, like, that gives you that kind of, oh, crap, I hope I don't die, because then I'm out for the round and it's not quite the same level of investment because the rounds are so short. It's not like losing a 40 40th level character in Diablo 3, but it is that same sensation. And so many shooters offer that where you spawn and you only have one life. Uh you know, I've been playing Max Payne 3 a lot lately. Great great multiplayer and that's one of the modes that comes up. And when that happens, I get that same kind of Dark Souls Dead Rising, Diablo hardcore sensation where I'm suddenly playing much more carefully and it's a completely different kind of game and it's completely tilted that needle on the enjoyable frustration scale. Uh, so shooters can do that, just to be fair mm-hmm. to them. Fair, uh,
2: yeah, fair enough, fair enough. That That is actually true. I shouldn't uh, shortchange them. And I think that's... A good example of you know what i was talking about where player expectations are yes. more important than the game itself maybe because obviously counter-strike is uh, done all right for itself in the last oh 10 15 years
0: <laughs> all right so i think that about covers everything there's other questions i could ask but uh it would be more for my own purposes than for listeners um so, before I bring it to a close, though, I was surprised to see uh, something pop up on Kickstarter this week that I had no idea about. Um, apparently, uh, an old Computer Gaming World column is coming back. Uh, Tom vs. Bruce uh, could be resurrected if
1: we give them $10,000? Uh, well, fingers crossed. Could Yeah, could be resurrected is sort of the operative word. We had this great uh two days like we're we're two days in we're a little over halfway there uh it's been very encouraging getting that sort of enthusiasm uh so hopefully we'll make the goal but yes Bruce and I have been talking about doing this for at least a couple of months uh, and it's just taken us a while to sort of get everything going and launch the thing and we approached a lot of people to get feedback uh so yeah, so hopefully uh we will this summer be starting up Tom versus Bruce again. Fingers crossed. Go yeah. to uh yeah, go ahead. So what is what is Tom versus Bruce for people who may not know? Ah, yes, thank I don't hit myself. Thank you. Yes. So Tom mm-hmm. versus Bruce is a column that Bruce Garrick and I wrote for Computing Computer Gaming World. Uh I think 11 years ago? or We started 11 years ago. It ran for seven years for the run of the magazine. Uh, and what we would do is play a multiplayer game head-to-head, usually, uh, and then write it up afterwards uh, as, a, as a kind of a story. Like we would jigger what actually happened and try to make it sound interesting and through that convey what the experience of the game was like. So it was a little bit of game review, it was a little bit of storytelling, it was a little bit of strategy tips. Uh, we put a premium on trying to make it entertaining. Uh, Bruce and I have very different voices uh, and perspectives on gaming, so we tried to bring that into the articles. Um, so that's that's what it is, and we would love to start it up again this summer. So go to Kickstarter, do a search for Tom vs. Bruce, uh, have a look at it. We have links to the older articles archived on OneUp.com. So, you can have a look at those, and if it's the sort of thing you'd like to read more of, we would encourage you to uh, to pitch in and support us. We would appreciate it.
0: So, are you going to be doing anything uh, different with the format now that you guys would sort of
1: be able to do
0: whatever the hell you want?
1: Well, let's see. Yeah, so being on the web, we would have, you know, we've got our own domain. This is, I run a site called Quarter to Three, and this is not part of that. This would be its own creature. We've got tomversusbruce.com, and we would love to play with the website format. Uh, you, you know, we learned a lot about doing video by putting up a Kickstarter video. We would love to play with that. We would love to play with the idea of posting replays of RTS matches and, and such. Um, so we don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, but we can't really help it, and we've talked a lot about what sort of crazy new things we can do by being on the web, by not having a word count, by not being limited to three pages in a magazine. Uh, so, yeah, we have a lot of exciting plans, and, and hopefully – we can bring some of those to folks starting this summer
0: all right sounds good and uh just to remind you you can find all of that information on kickstarter if you search for tom versus bruce and uh, if a video starts to play and you recognize the uh voices you hear you you found our guys all right as always uh, i'd like to thank our producer michael hermes for putting up with our uh kind of last minute throwing together of this podcast and the fact we're a little bit off schedule and uh also, Michael's been dealing with a bit of a family health crisis these last couple weeks, and uh, our thoughts are, of course, with him. Uh, so thanks, Michael, and uh, hope everyone in your family's doing better. All right, so that does it for our show. Tom, Dave, John, thanks so much for joining me. It's you know been this, fun.
1: This, oh, Dad I wanted to get that in there, and you beat me to it, Rob Zackney. I, I heard you winding up for it. I heard uh, you winding up. You, you know what? You frustrated me. You, uh, I wanted to well, enjoy it, I and you it. blew it, and now, now it's frustration. Oh!
2: Are, are you not having fun anymore?
1: No. Oh, this podcast is not fun.
2: Tom, <laughs> uh, this is the last time Tom Chick will be on the podcast for six months. Everybody, so enjoy <laughs> yeah. it. Right. Just feel night.
1: like I, I feel like a hardcore character just died. You <laughs> can't, you, you
0: can't, you can't quit now, Tom, because <laughs> you, you have to you have to master three moves ahead, and then it'll be fun again. All right. <laughs> good night, everybody. Good night. Good
2: night, night, guys.